We are happy to have you. So can you tell us a bit about yourself, Dustin? In the industry for about 15, 16 years, I kind of forget. I started out working with, well, I was in doing like enterprise software for insurance and banks. And uh, eventually I went to work for Microsoft where I worked there for 10 years. And now I work for Uber. And I've been a engineering, a software engineering manager for probably about seven years, I think. I wrote a book on .NET Core about a year ago. So please check, check that out. It's called .NET Core in Action. Scott Hanselman did the forward for it, which was really, it's a great endorsement. Awesome. You've been working on a tool called Cadence, is that right? Uh, Cadence, yes. Cadence, right. So it is a cloud orchestration system from what I understood. Uh, yeah, it's, if you think of it as similar to Amazon's SWF, and practically it's it's the same pers- people that came up with SWF um, are now building Cadence at Uber and it's kind of like version two. Um, but the biggest difference is that it's open source. Um, also, it's not like a, a SaaS offering like it is in Amazon. You can't just um, go to Uber and use Cadence. You have uh, you basically download it from GitHub and, and use it that way. That's great because there are also another cloud orchestration system from IBM I, I found. It is used for coordinating and managing computer resources and services. You can define a logical flow of activities from a start event to an end event to accomplish a specific service. So a service can include JS scripts or web services itself. So Cadence is a, is a bit different. So to give you an idea of the use case, we'll, we'll take an example. So say like at the at the end of an Uber trip, you usually have this, this chance to um, provide a rating and tip the driver. If you imagine this this tip scenario, so you're in the app and you pick a dollar amount and then you, you're going to tip the driver, uh, I don't know, like $2. When it gets sent to the back end, so to, to Uber's servers, it's basically saying, I want to tip this driver and then the, the transaction has to occur. We have to debit the rider's account and we have to credit the driver's account and we have to make sure that that happens. It's, it's like all or nothing. So because we don't want to charge you twice. We don't want to remove money from your account if we didn't actually pay the driver and uh, et cetera. So the very core of the business logic that you imagine there is just debit and credit. It's a very simple thing to understand. But when you think about how are you going to do it in a distributed system, especially where failures can happen. So say like I attempt to credit the driver and the the banking system is down or um, some other thing happens. And basically, then I have to start putting in queues and redundancy and a lot of the things that makes this code really hard to work. You know, there's, there's all kinds of ways to to do it, and they get pretty complex. And, and uh, especially as there's more steps in these processes, usually people will separate the logic into different areas. So say uh, you first do the debit and then send a signal to some queue, and then this receiver picks up from that queue and then does the credit and then uh, marks the thing as complete. And there are two disconnected pieces of logic. Just uh, you know, doing such a simple scenario can actually explode into a lot of infrastructure and a lot of code. The way Cadence works is um, it's trying to 
get that orchestration down just so that you write the code for debit and credit and you know that it's going to run. It's not using like a traditional two-phase commit transaction. What it's doing is it's uh, pulling away and then uh, providing all these things like the queuing mechanisms and the, the, the guaranteed delivery, doing it all on the, on the Cadence server. So what actually happens is uh, we have a, a guarantee that we deliver the messages to you only once. And then if something happens, something goes wrong, then you actually have a, a chance to work with it in your business logic. So all the uh, infrastructure pieces are taken care of. You know, this uh, the redundancy and all this stuff that, that's going, that you would typically have to build into your system. What you end up with is basically a, a core piece of business logic that's all in one place that you can follow. Uh, it makes it very easy for devs to work with, and it's uh, we don't try to subtract from your development experience by making you, you know, drag and drop boxes onto a grid or whatever. We, it's either in a well, we have a a Go client and a Java client, and you can just write, you know, pretty normal Java or Go code uh, to to do your orchestrations. So uh, it's it's actually pretty interesting, and there's a, a lot of um, uh, there, there's a pretty cool video from from Maxim, the the creator of it, uh, that I can share a link with you, so you can put it in the show notes. So that's great. I found that there is also the CLI, is a command line tool for Cadence, which will allow you to perform various tasks on the Cadence tool. And you also mentioned about exception handling. You mentioned about how it is a reliable service. So. I found that there is a Cadence Server Brokers. It allows you to persist tasks and events generated during the workflow execution. This, the broker gets kind of into the details of how it works, um, which is almost, uh, I mean, there is like a whole architectural thing, uh, a YouTube video um, under Uber Engineering that, uh, that that talks about exactly how how Cadence sends the messages around and how it how it does these guarantees, um, but for the most part, I mean, it's uh, you build a worker, so, uh, sort of like you would do with SWF. It's a, it's a very simple similar system. You you build your worker and that hosts the activities and it hosts the workflows that you're going to run, um, and then it's talking to the Cadence server on the back end, and those those uh that worker is basically long polling the uh uh cadence server looking for work and performing uh tasks and things like that um so you basically build the worker you host it it's a you know a service that you run um and then you have control over how it scales and then you have control if you you know uh you can upgrade new versions or uh however you want to run the the system uh, with regard to Cadence being open source, who is this system for? Is it for companies like Uber or? Especially for Uber, if you imagine um, all the, the, the kind of scenarios that, that Cadence can be used for. Uh, I talked about the tips thing, and that is actually a real scenario um, that Cadence is used for. Um, another one would be uh, if you imagine customer contacts. So you're using Uber and then, you know, you had a, a problem with your ride or, you know, an eats delivery was 
incomplete or something like that. So you go through the app and you say that you have a problem with your order and it is what we call a customer contact. So we need a customer support agent to talk to you. Uh, if for some reason the support person never gets back to you or your report is lost or for for whatever reason, you know, something doesn't happen, that creates a, a bad customer experience and it's... It, it gets particularly important when we're talking about financial data. So it's it's really about like not you know not losing data and being able to handle things when when data is lost, you know, because it, it's very clear when the cadence workflow is is stuck or or whatever. It will actually time out and then you have to do something about it. It works well with the Uber scenario, but it's it's very applicable in in other places as well. And then we've talked to a number of companies outside of Uber that have that have shown interest in it because of the guarantees that it provides. It can be used for customer support as well. For example, if a customer ticket was logged and it is now uh, for some reason lost, you can use Cadence to handle the issue. Yeah, I mean, the, the system has to be built on Cadence. And it's uh, if you imagine, say, like a customer contact that actually starts a workflow and then it goes through and it will start to, you know, you know, reach out to the to the customer support person. And if they don't get back in a certain amount of time, then it will time out. And then the workflow can say, okay, I can go to another support person. It's a, it's kind of like a built-in consistency mechanism that uh, you can build these orchestrations on top of. Uh, so, and I've been working in workflow for, Quite a while, actually. When I started at Microsoft over ten years ago, it was uh, I was actually working on workflow. And before that, I used to work in a bank where we were doing uh, mortgage processing, and we were we were using actually Windows Workflow at the time. And uh, I, I've spent you know time in and out of being on the workflow team, and then eventually, before I left Microsoft, I was I was the uh, manager for the workflow team. And the system that they had built and the, all the kinds of problems that we had to, to deal with, I'm, I'm quite impressed by what Cadence provides. Because there's, there's all these kinds of problems that you have to deal with. You know, how do you, like the traditional way in was you had this great big server and it was in your own custom data center, and if you could actually do, you know, with Windows uh, distributed transactions across all these machines, um, and that was how you did your guarantee. You know, you could. It was a two-phase commit system, and basically, all the machines would have to say yes, I'm ready to commit, and then you'd, they'd all go and commit, and you'd have a guarantee that your transaction was was either processed in full or was not processed processed at all. And it gave you that that kind of assurance, but it was super slow, and it doesn't work on the cloud. And you know, as you scale up to these these large systems, it's you know this this two phase commit thing is uh, uh, you know built into Windows and all that stuff. It doesn't really it doesn't really handle working on the on the on the cloud. And Cadence and uh, Amazon SWF before it actually come up with a different way of doing it that doesn't require this kind of um, commitment, you know, this two-phase commit system for, for transactions. It actually approaches it from a different way. 
and I think it's it's very novel and it's actually uh, particularly powerful. And the people with the, you know the teams within Uber really do recognize the the power of the system, and it's it's been being adopted quite well in, within Uber. Cool. I'm a .NET developer, but have also some experience with Java. So you mentioned that it works with Java and Go, right? Yes. Yeah. There's a Java client and a Go client. The Java client is is actually pretty pretty easy for a .NET developer to understand because the code's not much different, and you work with objects. Uh, and Go is a little bit different. It's it's the type and interface system is is a bit different. It takes a bit of a learning curve, but Java is much easier. Cadence can implement a stateless service. Do you know what a stateless service is? You might be thinking of the architecture of Cadence. So the 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 front end systems are are, are all stateless. So the, it's kind of divided into into three part. The first, the front end is is a stateless service, and then underneath there's two other services. One called the matching service, and one called the history service. They use a a system called Ring Pop that basically decides how to shard, you know, how to distribute the shards among those the machines within the ring. So there's a there's a stateless front end, but then it's the back end is not quite stateless. So it, each of those nodes in there will own a certain number of shards, and then if the node goes down, there's a timeout. And then the other uh, machines will take over those shards. From the client side, from the uh, you know for for the person that's building a worker that's going to be using Cadence, w- what they're doing there is is they're putting state like say into a, a a Java workflow. You can actually put the workflow is is a class. You can have fields in that class. And when the workflow is replayed, what it does is it it puts back all the the data in those fields as you know as it runs through the method and catches back up so you can put state inside these objects and it will be guaranteed to to be reproduced you know every time the the, the workflow is executed that's a great explanation now moving on we were going to talk about managing a development team i think what's what's interesting in in this this industry is you know, there, there's uh, as you go through your your engineering career, you get to this point where you have this uh, you have these two paths. You can actually go into this management path, or you can continue as an as an individual contributor. And I see, and going from being a developer to being a, a manager is not something that has a very clear uh, education path, or you know, there, there's not a lot of very clear guidance on how you how you make that transition and how you become a good manager because it's uh it's quite complicated. See, when I started out, I got uh, as a manager my first time. I had four people that were reporting to me, and so I'm still expected to make individual contributions. So um, I'm still expected to be a developer and write software and then also manage these people. So you're still you're kind of half and half. You're just taking on more responsibilities and kind of cutting down what you do with development. And over time, I I got more and more people, and I actually got to the point where, um, like right now, I have very little time to do code. I I spend most of my time on different tasks that have to do with managing. And it's taken quite a while to get to the to the part where I actually understand what it is I'm supposed to be doing. I think when it's 
when you're early on, like when you're a tech lead, figuring out what all the tasks are and prioritizing and making sure the backlog doesn't get too bad, that kind of thing, that all makes sense as a tech lead. But I distinguish, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's important to distinguish what the difference is between a tech lead and a manager. As long as you're still required to make individual development contributions, you're still a tech lead. As a manager, you're actually a people manager, but you have to have the, the, the technical know-how to be able to, to run the team. And I think that's a different requirement. And then you actually start to get out of this uh, idea of, you know, breaking down tasks and uh, assigning them to people. It's more of a, a higher level kind of what are my big projects, who should be assigned to those projects, and then delegating the, the work down. So I have senior devs and then they're able to take a big ambiguous project, tease it apart into a plan and individual tasks and assign those to, to, to junior developers. And I don't have the time to kind of micromanage and assign all the, the tasks to everybody. I have to trust that they can, that they know what they're doing. And it's a, it's a very different perspective for a, for a software engineer to get into. You were mentioning about pathways, like uh, there are uh, lead developers and there are also managers. You have a choice uh, when you're moving from a lead developer role to uh, either a manager role or a ops tech role, depending on the structure, of course, of your company. Usually, I found that many developers, especially the lead developers who are transitioning to a new role, would go for the software architect role. So for me, it's uh, not very common to see a, a lead developer switch from uh, a lead developer role to a, a manager role, especially a people manager role, because this is another kind of task. Why did you switch to a manager role? Is this is a good question. So <clears throat> I'll try to provide a, a, little, a little background about myself, because I think what, what, what people think is that you get into management because you like management and, you know, you get your MBA or whatever and you get trained as, as a manager and you might not have much idea about what the technical part of it is. You're just a kind of a people manager. And that's actually not what happens, um, especially in this uh, in, in this kind of field, because uh, like all the all the people managers that I've worked for have a really good understanding of the technical side. And it's, they have, they usually have a dev back. When I started out, uh, like, you know, even going back to like when I first started programming, I was, um, this is about 30 years ago when I started programming. I had a lot of ambition. I was, you know, I, I built all this, this great, you know, this really fun stuff. And I was really going to get into in the games, you know, so I, I started out, I, This was back in the original 8086 days uh, before the 286 came out. And I had built this thing where um, it was a library for uh, drawing pixels and drawing lines and drawing circles. I was using Bresenham's algorithms. I was, uh, it was all done in assembly. Like it was inline assembly that you could embed within a, a C++ program. So I was, you know, I was, you know, really into it and, I got into college and I was super excited. And then I got my first um, internship 
And, you know, I saw all of a sudden realized that I could get paid a lot more doing, uh, you know, doing development work that was not anything game or, or video related. So I kind of switched over and, you know, got into this, uh, you know, this more traditional, like the enterprise and software development, went around to different companies and, you know, eventually got to Microsoft and, and all this while I have this kind of trajectory and, and I can see myself growing as a developer and I'm really proud of the, the accomplishment I, I've, I've made and I'm doing awesome. And, but then, uh, you know, at a certain point you start to realize like that, that kind of uh, meteoric rise that you have in your capabilities starts to kind of taper off. And uh, there's only so much, you, like you start to realize there's only so much you can do individually. There's only so much code you can write. There's only so much you can design. And it takes a while to kind of come to terms with it where it's like, no, I'm, 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 I'm super awesome. I can totally do this, you know, operating system by myself in the next two weeks. It's, it's like you have this, you believe you can do just about anything. But then you start to realize, like, you really need to have other people involved to be able to build bigger things. And then you get into, well, how do I, you know, how do I get these people to do these things? And how can we be all on the same page? And, and, it, and then you start to, to realize that the impact that you have can be magnified if you're actually able to spread your, your, your influence and coach other people and get them caught up, you know, get them to grow as developers as, as well. Becoming a manager, you have this, this capability of guiding a bunch of developers to basically build the right things and, you know, be focused on, on the, the, the things that matter the most to the, to the company. You're making sure they're delivering something that's, that's going to be uh, able to, to grow the company, to grow customers, to, improve the the quality it yeah i think it's it's interesting the the how the picture changes when you look at it from a management side and uh you know you start to think about like the this project that i'm working on how does it fit what are the timelines you know who's depending on me and when do i have to deliver you know what should i you know what should we be focused on as far as features and that sense of the the bigger picture is is quite interesting and you have to, you can find ways to communicate that down to your devs so that they have an idea of like how important their work is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the things about being a manager that I find interesting. As a manager, what are the kind of tasks you do? Pretty much every day is different. On a, on a typical day, there's probably maybe a one or, you know, a couple of one-on-ones uh, with my devs. Pretty often there's, a, I have to conduct an interview. We have interview loops like anybody else does here. And besides that, I'll be meeting with teams like within Uber that are using Cadence. You know, is there something going on with the, the development environment? Like is the uh, is the build system not working correctly? Or is there some dependency, you know, some service downstream that we're using that is not performing well? And then trying to figure out a way to, to make sure that that's being addressed, you know, so the, the developers are productive and also the we're communicating with them about any problems that we have. Um, so there's still kind of a, a mix of the of the technical side. I do have to understand how things work and what's going on. 
And then there's a lot of kind of looking at the people and the, the, the teams that we're interacting with. The people you interact with are the developers and they are also the client. Do you only interact with the insiders? It's just people like other teams within Uber that are going to use Cadence. And I find all kinds of ways like, I, you know, I work on the documentation and I uh, answer questions in our, our, our chat group and I try to, to be as connected as possible so I know what other teams within Uber are interested in Cadence and um, what are their use cases and are there any things that they need in order to adopt Cadence or is there something that they don't like or, you know, trying to, to get a, a holistic picture of, of what our project is and how it fits. And then I can have a better idea about what kind of direction we should be going in. And occasionally we, I get to talk to people outside of Uber. Those are like particular, you know, this company is interested in Cadence and they want to know more about it. I try to do things outside publicly too. Like say like when you're an engineer and you're starting out, everything's very clearly defined. You have to do this. And then after that, you do these, these tasks and it's, uh, you know, you have to deliver this feature by this, this, this time period. For a manager, the, the, you kind of define what it is that you think is success. I think we should not only help Uber with, with their situations, but also like make it something that's interesting for, for people outside of Uber. I'm able to define that that's, that's the, the, what I think is success. Because I could also say, like I only care about what Uber does, or I only care about what open source does, or I only care about these, these five customers and every other customer, you know, they, they don't really matter. So it's, uh, I have that kind of freedom to be able to figure out what it is I think is the, the, the best route. The, the managers have to be very in, in, involved with you know, the, the promotion aspects and, and getting known and working with other, other teams and say like with, with Microsoft, the, the, the hierarchy is very well established and the, um, the, the process, the lines of communication are, are a little bit more defined. It makes it more restrictive and it actually gives you less power as a manager to do things, I think. You were mentioning the, the difference also between a team leader and a manager to encourage the personal development of the team members in the sense that you are giving them training plans and development plans. Is it a team leader toss or is it a manager toss? So that's more of a, a manager part. So when you think about like each person on my team, I have a goal to grow them as a developer. and each person is different and they have to have some individualized plan. What are their, what are their strengths? What do they need to work on? What projects would not only help them, you know, deliver well and, but also grow, like what would challenge them and, and get them to get to the next level. So there's a lot of kind of uh, looking at what's our roadmap, what things do we have to deliver and who's best suited to take over some, you know, each of these projects, each of these features, and in what order. Because best suited doesn't necessarily mean like the developer is awesome at this particular area. It could be that I need somebody to grow and they're not familiar with this area, but this would be a great opportunity for them. So I know it's going to take longer for them to ramp up than say the, the senior dev that's already familiar with this the system. So I have to kind of account for that and figure out, okay, we do have time this person can work on this and take an extra amount of, you know, a few extra weeks, a couple extra months, something like that. Ultimately, I get a better 
developer out of it. I can, you know, get them promoted next time, you know, and move them up and then have them become a tech lead or a mentor or, you know, even just an example, a great developer on the team. Do you also use information management tool? I have some example. There is Jira, VSTS, also known as Azure DevOps. There's Tracker. Do you use one of these or any different? You know, the, the tool actually doesn't really do much to, to help with the majority of, of management. If you're trying to plan out a project, you're probably a, a, a project manager or a product manager. And you might write up this great big Gantt chart and have all these ideas of, you know, this dev is going to work for this many days. I try not to get into that kind of granularity. Anytime I've, I've worked with something where it's got a Gantt chart, we never hit the deadlines that are put on the Gantt chart because it never takes into account like devs are very optimistic about estimates that they make. And the reality is usually two to three times what, the, what they initially estimate. And also there's, a, there's all kinds of things that can come up, like somebody goes on vacation or, you know, you have a parental leave or you have a customer that comes in and their, their feature is more important. So you can reallocate for that. I more or less look at like, is this area being addressed? And if it's not, then I can look into it and say, hey, this, you know, this task is not assigned and we should really start looking at that and then look for people that are, you know, that would volunteer to take it. And, and if nobody takes it, then I can start assigning. But to encourage developers to be kind of self-sufficient, like they understand what the problem is and they are willing to fix it. Thank you, Dustin. I think we have reached the time which we have scheduled. You provided some really good information and I was able to understand management a lot better now, especially for development. Awesome. If you have any question for me also, you can let me know and you can contact me when you want. Yeah, I appreciate the, the, the invite. All right. Thanks, Rishi.